Mike Browning is a name that you should recognize from Morbid Angel, Nocturnus, Nocturnus AD, After Death, and Incubus. Not the shitty pardon me one, but one of the various awesome ones from the metal underground. So I want to remind everybody, I am Reaper, and on ReaperMetalProductions.com, you can find every Into the Darkness interview, whether it be the video version or the audio version. It is all conveniently linked up on the website, and you can also grab a t-shirt or explore our fan club and become on Patreon and become one of the people that could ask uh, interview questions on Into the Darkness episode. And we do have uh, some fans wanting to ask Mike some questions, so we will be getting to that here soon. But first, I want to kick it off with something down and nerdy, and that's about recording, because recently on the channel, we had Scott Burns from Morrisound Studio, and Scott Burns is legendary for what everybody should definitely know that name for, especially if you know who Mike is. So then, that's the kind of the world of the way where my question kind of formulates is here, you know, you're in the death metal world and then going to more sound studio and in Florida, but you're on more of the other side of that where you're going to, uh, with, uh, uh what's one of the Morris uh, brothers. So it's like, you know what I mean? It's a right. different, it's a different production, but also a production that's also very much kind of like Scott Burns where it's like iconic, uh, but definitely different to the engineer that's doing it. So what kind of landed you to go more with one of the Morris brothers, as opposed to maybe more like pressure could he had even been on yourself with death metal and then to go, you know, at Morris on and not be with Scott Burns. Well, I, the, the, the whole thing really was when we signed to Earache, um, Digby wanted us to record with Tom Morris because he did the Morbid Angel record, the, mm-hmm. the, the first one, you yeah. know. And so when we went in there, he said, you know, I, I, I would have rather had like Jim or Scott myself because I like Jim's mixes a lot. He, I like what he did, like with the Nasty Savage stuff, Jim Morris. Yeah. And, um, and of course, I like all of Scott's stuff. So I wanted to have either one of them do it and digby was just adamant about having tom do it because tom did the morbid angel record so we kind of was it was like we didn't really have a choice and not that i don't like tom or anything it had nothing to do with that it was i didn't know uh that much stuff that tom had done compared to that i listened to that compared to like scott or 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 jim so i probably would have picked jim just because i really liked what he did with stuff but Scott is a really great guy too. And, and, um, he really, like, I've been in there watching some other bands record, you know, death and, you know, s- stuff like that when, when other bands were there and I, I, I came in there and hung out with people and man, he would stay there all literally all night and just work on stuff. And, you know, if, if their session ended at midnight, a lot of times they'll stay there till three or four in the morning just wow. cause they were, really going at it, you know, he yeah, didn't yeah. want to quit. The problem with Tom Morris was he was like a clock watcher. You know, if you're, if our session ended at 12, uh, there's the watch, you know, <laughs> it was like, you know, so I don't think we stayed late very often with him, you know, and kind of worked overtime. So it was, it was kind of more clinical with Tom. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, he, he did, he did really good. And for some reason, I don't know why, but our record, definitely doesn't really sound like a more sound recording the key you know it it, it i think thresholds sounds more like a more sound recording but yeah but the yeah. key just not no no yeah because de- definitely um the drums i would say are are kind of um well because um i like iced earth and 
Like, admittedly, I don't know the Nocturna stuff as much well as I do, and so I was getting more up to speed with, uh, a- as I do Ice Earth, as I do the Ice Earth records, that is. Uh, so I-, I was getting up to speed for this interview and, and listening up, and, you know, and had it's been a few, you know, a few moments since I heard it. I'm, I had no idea that with it came to Nocturnus, like, then there was Nocturnus AD, but then in between that or not in between that, there's After Death. And I had, right. no, and, and then, you know, obviously Nocturnus AD, Nocturnus After Death. So is there somehow a correlation between Nocturnus, Nocturnus AD, presumably those two, but then After Death? Well, uh, with Nocturnus, um, of course, most people know that I sang on the key, but I didn't sing on Thresholds. We yeah. had, and that was another thing that Eric wanted us to get a front man or actually have me quit playing drums and sing for the second record because. When we went to tour for the key, um, I guess the biggest complaint was that nobody moved around on stage, and I, I was behind this huge drum set singing, <laughs> and there was really not much to see, you know, when right. we played live. So, um, you know, Dig said, "Oh, for the second record, you know, I want either Mike to sing and quit playing drums and be the front man, or you guys get a front man." And and I was totally against it, you know, and everybody else was like. Yeah, you know, if we get if we get a front man, we're gonna get bigger. And and uh, at the time, Dream Theater was getting really popular, and half the guys in the band wanted to be the next Dream Theater. You know? Yeah. And I wasn't really. I like Dream Theater. Don't get me wrong, especially the early stuff. But it that's not what I wanted to do. You know? And 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 with the key, I wrote a lot. Like the last four songs are are a story. Yeah. You know? I wanted to continue that story on the next album. So when I didn't end up singing on, it was like a vote. Everybody voted against me. I wanted to keep things the way they were. And Earache actually really put the pressure on us. They said, oh, if you want a bigger budget, get a front man. If you want a smaller budget for your second record, stay the way you are. Hmm. If you want a video, and this, and, and, and you have to remember, this is 90, 91. Right. So Headbangers Ball was just getting really popular. And they and Eric also said, well, I know you guys, you know, we're going to get you a video that will be on Headbangers Ball. And if if you don't get a singer, we're not going to pay for a video. So they they kind of strong armed us into either me sing. And I really didn't want to sing and not play drums because I'm really more of a drummer than a singer. Right. You know, when it comes down to it. Uh, But it's it's i didn't want to quit playing drums either you know so i i just i i was against it but we ended up getting a singer and at that point everybody started writing lyrics you know the new singer and plus the keyboard player wanted to write a bunch of lyrics and and <laughs> the dog there <laughs> um, but um so you know things changed a lot from the first record to the second record and not one song on the first record got continued lyric wise on the second record Hmm. So was that something that was constantly pressure for you? Because this is not the first time that you would have done vocals and drums. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, uh, with Earache, it was really just the the matter of the way we looked live. You know, they wanted, they thought we could get a lot bigger yeah. if we had a front. And which, I mean, it could have happened that way. Yeah, yeah. You know, but we get a front man and we got somebody that really did a good job, but and we tried to get them to sound not too far away from what we were, but still the style changed. Uh, the lyrics changed quite a bit. 
and nothing continued from the first record like I wanted it to. So, I, I mean, I had all kinds of ideas where to take that, the story, you know, yeah. from Empire Stands, you know, and, and destroying the manger and stuff like that. It was a story. Did you kind of like, well, Iced Earth does stories, but they do it per album. Yeah. You know, this yeah. would continue on the next record, but it didn't get a chance to. So I always kind of had wanted to do that. But, but when I did After Death, I didn't really want that to be Nocturnus. I wanted it to be something, you know, completely different. So even though it was kind of similar, it really was kind of different. The lyrics were more about uh, the occult magic rather than the story like of the key and stuff like that. Um, so, but then when I decided, uh, I think it was what, 20, 2010, something around there. Sounds no, I right. think it was, no, 2012 or 2013, right around there. I decided to do, well, yeah, I guess it was late 2012, early 2013, something like that. I'll I decided check you in the to background. Do, <laughs> I, I decided to do, um, not the Nocturnus AD thing, you know, and where I could continue the lyrics and that was really the whole point. I wanted it to be different than After Death, but the thing was, it was all the same people. After Death um, and Nocturnus AD were the exact same people in the band. Right, right. So, but I wanted to continue the lyric stories more than anything else, and I wanted it to sound like the key, basically, you know, that style. Not the songs exactly, but the style. So when I decided to do um, Nocturnus AD, we and after death we were like tuned to D. So when we played Nocturnus songs, uh, Nocturnus was in E flat. So we always did the Nocturnus songs in in D. So they didn't sound exactly right. You know they were a little different sounding and, and a little lower tuning like that. So when we did um, Nocturnus AD, I told all the, the guitar players we're going to have to tune back up to to E flat <laughs> because I want everything to sound just like it did on the key you know, style wise. Right. And then I wanted to continue the lyrics. So I did, I took four songs like I did off of, um, off of, uh, the key. There's four basic songs that really have the key story, the last four songs. So what we did with Noc Nocturnus AD on paradox, the last four songs are the continuation of that. Hmm. Um, the first two songs on the key is lake of fire and standing in blood, which they kind of make a little story together. So the first song on on Paradox is called Seizing the Throne. It's like the third song to that, those two songs. It continues those two songs. And of course, Neolithic that's on the key, we have Paleolithic on Paradox, which is like the next time uh, era, era in time. So there was several things that I continued on, on Nocturnus AD from, from the key. Wow. So I didn't, and you made a comment there too about, um, you know, dream theater and, you know, kind of having the, you know, or people, you know, maybe expecting you to be kind of of an era with that because that being popular. And so with Nocturnus having more of the key elements, um, and you know, like literally the keyboard <laughs> rather than not the album, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it could be almost mistakenly to be more progressive or at least put you into that crowd. So was there any sort of pressure to become more like, you know, I guess shredding and kind of, uh, of that progressive element too, or it was just only the uh, drums and vocals thing. Well, uh, actually with the guitar players, both of them, their favorite stuff was shred metal. 
you know, mm-hmm. Tony McAlpine, Racer X. That's right, what they right. listen to mostly. So if you notice, you know, definitely Thresholds became more of a um, progressive kind of album. It was more progressive metal than death metal. The key is total death metal, I think. You know, it's like a technical death metal. And but paradise, I mean, uh, thresholds sort of is is more uh, progressive. I I would say, like a like a heavy dream theater almost. Yeah, and was that any to, uh, so like was that any just because of the fandom already? There was like no pressure from that because of the time or anything. Like it's been interesting doing too because like not to like just go into this long uh, tangent, but like I've done like interviews with a, a handful of. Uh, you know, some of the Swedish death metal fame and a lot of them uh, cite like a lot of the grunge stuff happening and, and making them kind of almost, uh, you know, change their perspective because, you know, they're being on a record label and, uh, you know, basically a product competing with grunge, which would similarly be Nocturnus in a way, uh, being, in, you know, in the 90s and all that, where like it was like influential to their at least success to embody you know kind of a a trend almost you know a musical trend so like but so none of that had it was all organic though the fact that those albums do have that uh difference between them would you say yeah pretty much i mean you know and it also had the fact that that everybody started writing more as far as the whole band right uh when you had the key um a lot of this stuff was written by mostly Mike Davis, the guitar parts. And some, some of it was written by Gino who had been in the band, um, before that. So we changed a lot of the parts that he had written and made them a little different, but most of the stuff was written by Mike Davis and the other guitar player. I don't think he wrote anything on the key. So when we had thresholds, you had Mike writing, you had the keyboard player writing and you had Sean wrote some riffs too. So it, the thresholds was like a big mix mash. I I barely wrote anything on, on thresholds. I wrote a couple lyrics to just like a couple of the songs, and 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 my drum parts. But I didn't help arrange hardly anything like I usually do. Right. Um, even back in Morbid Angel, you know, Trey and I sat there for three years and wrote a whole bunch of songs, and it was just me and him working on these things day in and day out you know we had probably 20 songs right back then and when when i left the band in in 86 and and it was like he's used all of that stuff over the years yeah (laughs) even that invocation to the continual one that that's an old song called morbid angel from 1986 well I was going to kind of segue to that myself and say, like, if we're going by any chapters in this conversation, that, you know, maybe we should go to now take a chance to the uh, uh, turn, turn to the earlier years. Uh, because, you know, when you're talking about writing and all that and, and changing and, and, you know, because, like, they, you know, get, have to get a front man because you're playing drums and vocals and, and then it wasn't your idea uh, from there. Like, you, it sounded like you had a pretty good hand in writing stuff. And I've heard you talk about the Morbid Angel years and, uh, you know, your relationship with Trey and stuff and kind of being – uh, slightly responsible for you know young kids to you know maybe kind of turn out with the personalities that they became you know and stuff so you you had a you're not just a drummer <laughs> and especially with Morbid Angel you were drum, drums and vocals on that as well so to kind of rewind back to then more 
I guess it's probably not your first band, but one of the, you know, collectively known first bands, you know, Morbid Angel, and then, yeah, having that dynamic of writing and all, uh, you know, where does that kind of come into play, you know, being a drummer, though? Well, <clears throat> back with Morbid Angel, it was, it was, we tried out a bunch of singers. And, of course, the music kind of changed over those first couple of years from, say, well, I met Trey in high school. In 1981, I met him. And we started jamming early 1982. Uh, and the first band that we had was called Ice. And yeah. we actually did, yeah, ICE. And I think he, he came up with that name. And it, it, I don't remember exactly, but ICE standed for some, stood for something. Um, I'm not sure. I don't remember what it was that he was thinking about when, when he came up with that name. But, but, we we put together a little band and we did like the high school talent show. <laughs> yeah, there you know it's it's nice. kind. Of, I wish that got recorded because it was pretty cool. But I mean, I mean, we were playing stuff like UFO and you know Scorpions and Priest and things like that because yeah, you got to think of this was 1982. Hey, that'd know? be way better that than a high school talent show this day. <laughs> you know, songs <laughs> or something like that. It was not a big production or anything. You know, we just got up there and played yeah and after that we kind of continued it well after that actually trey moved to the other side of town um and because his mom managed uh, apartment complexes so she kind of they had a house at, at that point and then she got a job managing an apartment complex so they moved and you know back when you're that young when somebody moves across town that's like forever <laughs> you know <that's> <laughs> yeah yeah so there was a few months we didn't jam, and he jammed with some other people, and that's when he hooked up with Dallas, the bass player. Now um, you, you said you said you knew him in high school. Did you say what age? Like earlier high school, like fifteen? No, no, I was I was a senior, okay, and he was okay. a junior. Okay, uh, so like six, first... sixteen to eighteen, probably about. Yeah, he came into the it's a high school already, like he was a new student. Yeah, I the whole time, but he came in. He was like the new kid. You know, and I was like, oh, this guy's got long hair. He looks like he, you know, so we started, there was a place called the alley where everybody smoked cigarettes and stuff like that, you know, uh, and hung out. I want the, the hippie kind of people hung out there, you know, cause, <laughs> well, that would be, you know, 1979, 80, right. you know, so uh, when I first went into high school, so um, he smoked, say, I never smoked cigarettes, but he did. So he was in the alley smoking a cigarette one day and he was a new student. So I started talking to him. And we both liked the occult. We both knew Necronomicon stuff. You know, we both had the book. Sweet. And and I played drums and he played guitar. And it was like, wow, you know, let's get together and do something. So we did. And, you know, I worked with them for think? years so from 82. And like I said, we took that small break there, um, and the, like pretty much the summer of 82 to the beginning of 83. And then we kind of hooked back up and he already had like uh, was jamming with this these, these guys called Death Watch. And um, the singer was sort of like, he sounded sort of like Cyrus Ungle. Okay. Like their singer. Yeah. And that really strange kind of voice. Yeah, yeah. And, and, raspy. and he had a bass player. Yeah, yeah. And he had a bass player uh, named Dallas. And they had a drummer that was older than them. And he just wasn't, I think he was from like Lakeland or Winter Haven. So it wasn't real close. And he was traveling every weekend. And they he wasn't kind of getting what they wanted to do. Because you so, were of the Tampa train, area or like the suburbs of, but like, or just truly Tampa? Well, Lakeland's not part of Tampa. It's like the town okay. next. Okay. But that's where town. you were. That's where you guys were, is the Tampa area. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We were all in Tampa. 
and um, they were practicing in uh, in in the apartment complex uh, rep building. You know, the like the building you can rent. You know, to do things because his mom, you know, was managing the complex. <laughs> so every they'd get together and jam in there, and so they invited me out to try out, and so I started jamming with them, and then Charles the singer he got into some trouble with drugs and ended up getting like 10 years in jail. Oh, wow. So yeah. So that's when Dallas took over on the vocals and, and, um, he, he was singing a little bit, but we didn't have a PA or anything. So we were still, and we were big time into merciful state at that time. That was like the band. That explains and, a few uh, things. With the yeah, more of a, more sure. of <laughs> and so we tried out a singer named Kenny who had a whole PA and light show. He was much older than us. And that's how that um, thing called the beginning. I don't know if you've heard that or not. It's on YouTube. You can hear it. We did like a demo with him and he tried to sing a falsetto, like a King diamond. Yeah, and it just, yeah. didn't, it didn't sound right. You know, we thought we wanted to get a singer like for morbid angel. That was kind of like a King diamond, you know, somebody like that, but it, it just didn't sound right. right. And Dow um, was singing, backups and he was kind of showing kenny how the words go because dallas was writing some of the music back then as well with trey and and um it just didn't work you know with kenny so dallas was like when we heard dallas's voice it was like hey this 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 works so he started singing and then i i uh i was at a party and i convinced oh i met this guy named richard Burnell at at this yeah. party this there was a band called power surge they were on uh, Roadrunner Records. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. And I think they ended up doing something on Metal Blade after that. Uh, but they were a power metal band, and they had this big house on the on this real popular street in Tampa, and they used to have these huge parties. And we're talking like, you know, 1983. <laughs> and uh, so I met this guitar player there, and you know, we were always thinking we should get a second guitar player because Trey loved to play so many leads. You know, there was just bass and drums half the time and nothing else but leads. <laughs> so I convinced Trey that we needed a, a guitar player to do some rhythms behind his leads, you know, and, and then we could do harmonies and things like that. So he went with it and we got Richard in the band and um, Dallas was singing and we did a couple shows. There's a show called the Power Company show where um, Dallas was singing and Richard was singing a couple songs. But when Richard tried to sing, he couldn't play guitar and sing at the same time. So he would always stop playing guitar and then sing, you know, yeah. and that wasn't, and then Dallas got in some trouble and went to jail. Jeez. So again, we were stuck with, uh, you know, somebody, Richard wasn't able to really sing and play at the same time. And we had tried out a couple people here and there. And it was just like, I was kind of fed up with it at that point. I was just like, you know what? I'm going to try to sing. Uh, because I, I, you know, I like bands like Exciter. Yeah. And, their drummer, he he's a great vocalist, right? Right. And I, well, if he could do that, I, I think I could do it too. You know, and I understood <laughs> the lyrics. I helped Trey arrange every song. You know, we sat there and worked on these songs. You know, he would come up, of course, with the rhythms, but I'd be like, "Let's do this." You know, ten times here and five times here, and cut this in half. And you know, I'm pretty good at doing that right. kind of stuff. With, with this, I guess you know, since I'm a drummer, I, I know how to arrange songs, and um. So we arranged a bunch of stuff, you know, and and uh, I started singing because I knew all the lyrics, and and uh, 
we had Richard then we got another uh, bass player named John Ortega from he was from Winter Haven that Winter Haven Lakeland area and um, we did a couple shows like the uh, the uh, Rocky Point Beach Resort show that's like a real popular thing on on Facebook I don't know if you've seen <laughs> that show or not um, but there we did a couple shows and uh, we recorded well I, I knew this guy in um, Brandon which is a little suburb of Tampa. And he was a singer and his name was Mike too, uh, metal Mike. Well, he had moved and he called me one day and said, Hey, I'm jamming with the, with this band called Baron cemetery. And the bass player has a record label called Goric records. Hmm. And I said, cool. You know, and he, and he's like, he knows you guys and he knows massacre. <clears throat> and he's like, he wants to sign both of your bands and he's got a bunch of money, a backer and all this stuff. And I, I was like, okay, you know, this sounds cool. Uh, so he sent us a contract and it happened to be David Vincent. Nice. So David Vincent signed morbid angel on his label, Goric records. And that's when we went up to North Carolina, uh, Charlotte and recorded, um, the abominations of desolation record. Right. In 86, so, right? Right. Exactly. That was like in April of 86, April, May, you know, right around in there. And then with the intent, like, and that was the intention to be an album, correct? Oh yeah, it was a record contract. We, I have the record contract. Okay, I actually have the record contract. There, still. There's, there's a little bit of uh, discrepancies there as far as the details. Correct? If you ask certain individuals, they might get a different story. Yeah, yeah, you will definitely. Uh, it seems like that. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I didn't, know why. I didn't know uh, that. I didn't know that until recently. Yeah, I mean, I have the record contract. We signed a record deal, wow. and we went up there and recorded. There was a budget, right? And uh, we recorded in Charlotte. And actually, Bill Matoyer, who worked with Metal Blade uh, on the first Slayer record, first Metallica, we worked on a bunch of records. Uh, yeah, all the Lizzie Bull yeah. stuff. Oh, of course. He's was a, hired. He's a Scott Burns of his own, or hell, probably a bigger you know name. Right. Yeah. So he actually was the one who engineered the record. What what so, did he, he did? Bill Matoyer yeah, did Abominations? Yeah. Yeah, he um I yeah, I, I just must have Bill forgot Moore. that. Or oh they don't know that. That's a, a lot of people don't know. No. I mean, okay, I'm one of them. <laughs> I thought I, I had um had him fly in from California okay, to he, Charlotte. Yeah, he's and, from LA then, I think, right? Yeah, and he then, still is. And so did you have to go to North Carolina because that's where David Vincent was from, right? Right. Because that's how people often will say that uh, Morbid Angel isn't Florida death metal because, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess because of the David Vincent connection. They'll say Morbid Angel's from North Carolina. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. I've heard that before anyway. I have heard that, yeah. They lived there for a couple, probably two years or so. Well, okay, you know? I, I guess that makes sense, yeah, because he would run probably up there before he made the move or some something like that. But okay, so I I had no idea though that that was for the the first record that okay that it was on his label, and then you went to North Carolina because obviously that's where he's from. Then okay, so then well then what went wrong? How did that like you know not become the full the first full length album and just have the the story of what you know that that you usually hear? <laughs> well, well, what what basically happened was when we finished recording. David looked at everybody and said, all right, you guys go home and I'm going to keep Trey here for the mix down. Now that was never discussed beforehand. Wow. 
Yeah, and I, you know, being that I, I did half the album. I did the vocals and the drums. All you got left is guitar and bass. <laughs> right. So here I am. I, I got all these ideas for my vocals that I wanted to do oh, and for things sure. like that. Sure. Yeah. And, and this guy's like telling me, "Go home. We're gonna mix the record without you." Oh man, I would have been pissed. And he sent me and Johnny and and Richard back, and he kept Trey there by himself with with uh, Bill Matoyer, of course. And they mixed the record the next week, and we had uh-huh. to go back to Tampa. We weren't allowed to stay there. R- and I, when if I when could, Trey came, he was just a different person completely. And what I found out was David had just fired their guitar player in their band, and the whole uh, you know terror, who he was was Steve right? was uh, Skeletor. Oh, from Halloween. He was playing with David in his band. He was their guitar player. And hmm. I, I think he actually quit, but Steve Shoemaker. Oh, so, oh okay. Yeah, yeah. So he quit, and David was looking for a guitar player. Wow. And, of course, he saw Trey play guitar. He was like, this is going to be my guitar player. So part of him keeping Trey there for that week, he hounded Trey, because Trey told me when he came back, you know, he hounded him to, to join his band saying, oh, this record, you know, the bass is terrible on it. And, you know, we, we need, you need to get a different bass player, but I don't want to do it, you know, cause he played bass and he didn't want to play in Morbid Angel at that, at that point, he didn't want to be on the Abominations record. So he said, I know a bass player I can get for you guys, but you need to get rid of that bass player and this and that. But Trey was adamant about not quitting Morbid Angel to join David's band. Wow. You know? So yeah, when Trey came back though, he really was a different person. Like, that week he was gone. I don't know what happened, but he came back. He was totally like hardly talked to us. Um, we had a house, a band house that we practice at, and he was the only one that didn't live there. He lived in the apartment complex with his mom still, but we practiced there and everything. And he would just come there every night and practice with us, but go home. But the other three of us lived there, you know, Johnny, me and Richard, right. we all had a room there and lived there and we wanted Trey to live there, but he didn't want to. You know, he, he liked being at his house with his mom there. So um, anyway, so that kind of happened. And Trey came back and said, we got to fire our bass player, Johnny. I was like, why? You know, what's wrong? Oh, David says the bass is terrible on, on this album. And it ruined the whole album. And that we're going to get this other guy, Sterling Scarborough from Atlanta. And he's going to redo the bass tracks once he learns everything. This so is David Trey, Benson saying that. Not uh, the. Yeah, well, we did that Rocky Point Beach show after we recorded Abominations, and if you if you watch the show, you'll see I announced that we have a record coming out. <laughs> wow! So at that point, the record was still going to come out. Everything was going to be good. We and we got Sterling uh, to play bass, and we did another show after that that unfortunately never really got videotaped or anything. Um, but we did a show with Sterling. And then, um, and he was learning the songs and, uh, some of those, actually those, uh, three Incubus songs were going to be more of an angel songs because when Sterling joined, when Sterling joined the band, he was, he said, I want to, you know, do my Incubus songs in Morbid angel. And Trey was like, at first he didn't want to do it, but he kind of, when he saw the songs, um, and there's a practice tape you can hear on YouTube, uh, with Sterling. And and we're playing Reanimator's Mutilations as Morbid Angel. 
Wow. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. You know, so we were going to do all that stuff, the incub- those three Incubus songs, probably a few more that he had too, um, in Morbid Angel. So everything was actually going really well at that point. The album was still going to come out. Sterling was going to re-record all the bass tracks. That's why the album didn't come out earlier. And Okay, and, I see that. Okay. And then one day I was at work, and I was working close to Trey's apartment complex. So I said, oh, you know, I'll stop by Trey's house for lunch and see what's going on. So I pull into his apartment complex, and there's my girlfriend's car. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? You know? <laughs> and so I walk up to the, the front door and I put my ear to the door and all I could hear was a TV going. Oh, boy. So I went back and I kicked the door open. I broke it off the hinges and they were on top of each other on the couch, just kissing, going out. And they were still had their clothes on, but they were kissing. So I don't know how long, because I never really found out if if this was the first time it happened or how long if were something you with this girl? Me? Yeah. Uh, probably about eight or nine months. Okay. So well, I had no idea. No. You know? no. I, I didn't know. I, I had a steady job, so I went to work every day. He didn't work, and she was a waitress at a Hooters, so she worked <laughs> at night. So, you know, during the day. Oh, boy. I, I don't know if it, it if it was an ongoing thing or that was the first time or what. But, wow. you know, I said I broke the door open. I found him, and I just kind of. I I got there was a lot of yelling and arguing and I left because I was at work, you know, and and, uh, and so I left. And then that night, Trey came to pick up his guitar stuff. He quit. He said, basically, it's over. He quit Morbid and, Angel. No. Well, he quit playing with us. Okay. Because Morbid Angel was his name. Oh. And he said, well, I've been talking to David Vincent, and he always wanted me to join his band, so I think I'm going to go to North Carolina and join up with him, but I'm keeping my name. Okay. And I got really mad, and I beat the fuck out of him. <laughs> and I was like, I was willing to say, look, you know, I was mad, of course, but I was like, I was willing to kick her to the curb and just still keep Morbid Angel going and just be a man about things. And when he said that it was over, that he was going to quit and all this because of something that he did anyway, I got pissed off and I beat the hell out of him. And um, Sterling was like laughing at him while I was beating him up. And then Richard ran in his room and closed the door. And I was throwing him against the wall and hitting him. And I beat the hell out of him really bad. And uh, about two days later, Richard was like, oh, I've been talking to Trey and he's going to go up to North Carolina and and I think I'm going to go with him. Cause David's got all this money and he's got backers and he's got this and that, and he's got the label. And now that the album's not going to come out anymore, you know, I was like, whatever, dude, you know? So he did. And that's when Sterling and I stayed together and we got Gino as a guitar player and did Incubus. What was your communication then with David though? Like, cause it I, seems like you were just like dismissed of any authority that you had when you had a lot of it. You know, yeah. Well, like the weird thing was, it was we got the record deal because of me because I knew the singer that that David was working with at the time, Mike, because he was from Brandon. He was the one that called me and said, "Hey, this guy David has a record label." So, it, if it wasn't for me, we wouldn't have got on Goric Records in the right. first place. We would have never even known who David Vincent was. Right. 
And turns out that he tried to get Cam to join the band and kicked out Mike, the singer, as well, when Steve quit, the guitar shoemaker. So David needed a vocalist and and a guitar player. And he wow. wanted Cam from Massacre, and he wanted Trey from Morbid Angel. Huh. <laughs> so that's, that's what really you know went down with that whole situation. And uh, so when Trey and Richard left, you know, uh, Sterling and I were just like, Okay, you know, now we still got Incubus, you know, he said, it's my band, you know, so I'll, you know, and I was like kind of fed up with everything. So I said, okay, let's just do it, you know. And uh, so that's how Incubus kind of came about from Morbid Angel. Like, but how did you not then, uh, like, was it discussed about who would do vocals then? Because, you, you know, why didn't you do vocals, especially having abominations under your belt? Well, I mean, uh, well, at that point, Abominations was not going to be released. But it was still recorded, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was definitely recorded, but it was not going to be released anymore. Yeah. And and Sterling had wrote all the lyrics in Incubus. They were his songs. He wrote the music. He wrote the lyrics, everything. It was all his idea. And I, I was just, like, fine with it at that point. You know, I kind of just wanted to take a break and just kind of play some Two drums because the Incubus yeah. stuff was a lot faster Oh yeah, it's <laughs> more of an angel at the time, right? You know, I kind of was like, I don't know if I could, you know, if you if you listen to what Sterling singing on there, we were playing those songs so fast, even he wasn't catching all the words, like in <laughs> Reanimator's Mutilation. If you read the lyrics, <laughs> you know, right. and and, and uh, I, it was hard for me to try that stuff because actually, what was funny is when he joined Morbid Angel this and we were doing reanimators mutilations i was singing it and you're talking about god died on his knees right was that a just a demo tape or was that uh all because it because it came out on seven inch because like even abominations is actually confusing like i'm in my 30s so like as a fan that's like i don't know was can encompass the halfways with technology and so even like encompass you know slightly the uh, the old days of pen and paper and and fan clubs and all that good stuff i can also comprehend like getting in re- records and stuff um so like i I'm, I'm confused though like what was the dynamic i guess being later presumably that i'm just i'm i had maybe a bootleg to introduce me because that was also a bootleg like you know heavily bootlegged as well so like was it a seven inch or was it just a a, a demo first it was just a demo um we did it in in one night at a studio we just went in there and knocked it out and and the funny thing is when we were practicing those songs as incubus you know just sterling and gino and myself we had a pa but he never sang so we never even heard his voice. We never heard any stuff from Atlanta that he had done prior. Um, All right. <laughs> the, the stuff David hailed so much. Angel. We had we, – we were doing um, – we did um, Engulfed and Reanimators in Morbid Angel. So we were starting really. to work on God Died on His Knees, the third song. And Sterling had a few more too. You know, he had, he had several songs. I don't know how many he had exactly, but he had – you know – he had a good, probably a good set list of songs at least. Um, and so we were working on him, but we never, he never sang. So until we went into the studio and recorded, we never heard his voice. So, you know, I, I kind of like to sing stuff that I write and it's, 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 I mean, the, you know, Trey wrote a lot of the Morbid Angel stuff, of course, too. 
more than I did actually, but it was like, I liked, we were there when we wrote the stuff, you know, together. So I had a, I mean, when I started singing it, I added stuff in all over the place so that I could sing it, rearranged it a little bit. You know, if you listen to um, when Dallas was singing those, some of those songs and then when I was singing them, it, it kind of changed. You could tell on Abominations right. uh, from the live stuff that we did before that. So, it, it, you know, it was a progressive thing that it kept kind of changing, especially with Morbid Angel. You know, we kept kind of, I don't know what you would call it, but progressing, you know, I guess, and changing. And the, like that last bit that we did with Sterling was phenomenal sounding. You know, we were doing the Incubus songs. We were doing Morbid Angel stuff and it and it was like he was a really good bass player so we had stepped up our game quite a bit after we recorded abominations and uh you know when sterling wanted to do incubus i was like well you know i'm fine with it because i was still gonna play drums you know and uh i liked the music and we were already playing it but i did sing reanimators and stuff like that when when we were doing it in morbid angel you know, I'm curious then, because I wanted, like, it seems then maybe to put it in perspective, like, what, mute lyrically then, like Nocturnus, After Death, like all the stuff that you would be more, you know, uh, having a pen and, and writing lyrics to, it's not as much of the, I guess, satanic edge that would have been Morbid Angel, would have been Incubus, and some of that could, well, not, not and actually, I was, I was about to say some of that could be youth, but, uh, Obviously, with Morbid Angel, it, it wasn't so much, and that was kind of an ongoing theme. So, is it safe to say that more of the satanic edge isn't entirely your influence as it is other guys? Well, not really. I mean, in Morbid Angel, the songs that I that I wrote the lyrics to was like Demon Seed, yeah, Hell on, Chapel of Ghouls, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, and the the more Necronomicon lyrics was, were actually what, what Trey wrote because he was heavily into the book at that time. And so I wrote the more blasphemous kind of stuff and he wrote the more Necronomicon kind of lyrics in, mm. in Morbid Angel. When Sterling came in, his lyrics were just total Lovecraft horror stuff, you know? Right. And totally evil. So I he had great lyrics. So like God died on his knees, you know, <laughs> and Gulf horror you know you know reanimators mutilations he had great lyrics so i was like you know fine with him doing all his own lyrics because he had already had most of that stuff written anyway we were just kind of learning it and throwing our own you know essence into it of course too but um so that's what happened there and then when i did nocturnus uh the first version of nocturnus had vincent crowley in it yeah and and he was in a band called entity before that an entity had broke up and incubus had broke up and um the bass player richard bateman he had just left he was in agent steel at the time touring with them and he, he said john cyrus was such a weirdo that he quit in the middle of a tour and came back to his house in tampa and he had just quit agent steel so all three of us had just quit our bands <laughs> that we and, and we're like okay and i came up with the name nocturnus and and i said i'm gonna do my own band this time and i'm gonna sing and 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 write all the lyrics that way i don't have to worry about anybody else saying this or that or you know 
So the early, but the thing that happened with the early Nocturnus was Vince had a bunch of songs that were really good from from Entity. So when we did we did some of some of the early Nocturnus stuff were actually Vince's songs from from Entity, and he had written the lyrics, but I was singing everything. Wow. So because I think in Entity he had a singer uh, for that band. He wasn't singing back then, and he was playing guitar. So he played guitar, and the first version of Nocturnus was just a three-piece. It was me, Richard Bateman, and Vince. And then Gino came back into the picture, who was in Incubus, and we became a four-piece and did that first demo. And two of the songs were Vince's songs, and two of them were mine, uh, you know, the lyric-wise. So, um, But when Vince quit, he couldn't get along with Gino. Uh, When Vince quit... And when he actually moved out of out of Florida because he hated the heat too, uh, he hated he really hated the heat here, and <laughs> he wasn't getting along with his parents, so he just kind of left Florida altogether. But he lives in Ohio now. He lives in Columbus, Ohio. I've ran into him a few times. Vincent Crowley. I've I've ran into him a few times. So he, yeah, he's a, but but back then, you know, he just kind of was fed up with it. He didn't get along with Gino at all. Huh. And and so he just kind of quit and left and. When that happened, he all the songs that were his, you know, went with him. So even though they were Nocturna songs, he took them and they became Asheron songs. So at first they were Entity songs, then they became Nocturna songs, and they became Asheron songs. <laughs> Same songs. Wow. So yeah, it was kind of it was kind of a weird progression how it how it happened that way. Well, so speaking but, of songs and stuff, sorry to cut you off. I because I want to take I, I want to soon get into some of the fan questions because they kind of correlate with where you're at uh, with some of the timeline of of, of stuff. Uh, but I wanted to ask you then because you're talking about a lot of members like Vincent Crowley, you know, with and then Atron. Like I I knew about a lot of this uh, camaraderie formulating the you know as a fan like the the classic scene. But like I didn't know some of the story, I guess that like I guess makes it even closer than I I, I comprehended it to be. Um, so you said earlier though that there were Morbid Angel songs that you had worked on that were never used in your time in the band. Um, so I, I was curious, what songs were those, and like, do you remember what like were they on like even later albums? Then like it sounded like it almost went even went further into like you know third fourth album era. Oh yeah, like Invocation of the Continual one is was like on what their fourth or fifth record. So, um, wow. so about half of the stuff on on Alters was old. Yeah, you know, yeah, think, that one's an obvious one. Okay, yeah. I think one called was it Damnation. Okay. that was something different we were working on. Um, like I said, there's there's a there's a rehearsal that's on YouTube you can find from the summer of '86, um, and you'll hear. You know, a couple of those songs wow. that were new stuff for us that we were working on. And you'll hear Reanimator's Mutilations, all done by Richard Trey and me and Sterling. Hmm. So, yeah, some, I mean, there was a lot. I mean, I think, what was it? Um, well, pretty much if you listen to Abominations, everything except for Demon Seed was used. Yeah. Yeah, I guess Everything. so. Yeah, because even like uh, Angel of Disease, I guess was uh, later in the, uh, but then it was what on Covenant, right? So, so Angel of Disease so. later, um, Welcome to Hell became Evil Spells. Uh, 
like I said, we were working on that damnation song when at the end there, uh, you know, everything except for, for, uh, demon seed and demon seed was one of those songs. that was just like a two and a half minute crazy thing with, with two or three rhythms in it. So I could see why Trey didn't want to really continue with that one. Yeah. So, well then now that time has gone by and, you know, obviously some shitty things that you could be probably missing credit for uh i mean i don't even need to probably have to go back to say what was your it like when what abominations came out three years later so i guess i'll just e- ask an easier 2020 literally the year as we do this interview <laughs> that you know f- looking back what is your relationship like with trey do you even talk to him well it's weird for i mean it, it was like even when that happened, I was kind of in that point, you know, back in the eighties where you, you, you had a problem with somebody, you got into a fight with yeah. them, dusted yourselves off and then you became friends again, you know? And, and nowadays <laughs> you have a fight. Yeah. You get the you internet were, text. <laughs> yeah. You know, but nowadays they either sue you or shoot you. If you get in a fight with somebody, somebody's oh, going yeah. to jail, somebody's getting sued, somebody's yeah. getting shot, yeah. you know? So it's not that, like, they just like pop first. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I kind of expected that after I kind of beat him up that we'd still be friends and work our shit out, you know, and it just didn't happen that way. So there was a, a long while where we didn't talk at all. And then we started talking a little bit and then more of an angel got really big. And then he, he kind of became really reclusive and didn't hardly talk to anybody for a long time. And uh, just what's really strange is back in December, they played in Tampa. And I went to the show, uh, Morbid Angel, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, I talk to Steve all the time, Tucker. He's, he's you know, I actually get along with him. I, I've, you know, I've, I've talked to all the other guys. And, you know, I, I'm friends with Pete, Commando Pete, of course, you know, Sandoval. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. So... When they played in Tampa last December, I went to the show, and a friend of mine, Anthony, um, he he knows Trey well too. You know, he used to hang. He's one of the few people that did hang out with Trey, and he kind of said, brought me to back to where the bus was, and there was Trey, and and uh, we started talking, and he was a little offish at first, but then um, I handed him a Paradox CD. And gave him my phone number. And uh, about a week later, I get a text from Trey. He's like, "Oh wow, dude, I like this album. I, I've been listening to it. And he texted me. And so we started actually texting and talking again. So um, it's it's weird with him. Like, we'll talk for a couple days through text. And then, um, then I won't hear from him for a while. So... So oh, wow. Actually, I, this did take I a think, while though to get back in touch with them then over about 30 years. Yeah, exactly. But like right now at this point, you know, we can I can text him right now and talk to him and we'll start having a conversation about this or that or you know whatever it is and he still he's he he likes talking about some weird stuff like politics sometimes so guns things like that. So, you know, we even talked about BMX bikes <laughs> and that lately so we, the one thing we don't talk about much is music <laughs> so i mean it's cool though you know i mean 
I always thought it would be neat to get Richard and me and Trey back together again. Yes. And, and, and Richard was going to, you know, um, he was working and doing, I don't, I still don't know what happened to Richard, you know, what really happened to Richard. Um, I don't know if he killed himself or, or something happened overdose or what, because his family had a closed funeral, uh, would not speak to anybody about what happened to him. And I had talked to him two weeks before, before he, he was found dead and he was working in a restaurant and he had cut his hand really bad and it was like really swollen and stuff. And I was like, dude, you need to go. It was his birthday. And I said, dude, you need to go to the hospital. He goes, why well, I, I did go to the hospital and he had a really bad infection going on on his, on his finger from, from getting a cut at work. And that was the last time I talked to him. And he asked me if I would play drums for that mosaic covenant project that he was doing. Hmm. And I said, sure. You know? And I said, he was riding a bicycle to work. He didn't have a car cause he had lost his driver's license. And he seemed that he was really trying to do well. He was drinking water. He wasn't drinking. He wasn't doing any drugs at all for months, months. And, um, he was going to come over and we were going to jam again. And then I was going to try to get Trey to come over and the three of us to kind of get the three of us together again. Right. And kind of had hoped that that might happen, you know, then all of a sudden Richard's dead. Wow. You know, and, and I, I could not, I have tried um, some of the guys, the other guys that he was jamming with at the time that saw him just like a couple nights before. Nobody knows. You know, nobody knows anything. Still. And they, yeah. I wow. mean, nobody's been able to find out what happened to him. Wow. It's strange. I don't know if he went off, fell off the wagon or something else happened. I have no clue. So, you know, Several people talked to Richard's sister who found him, you know, and right. she will not come out and say anything about what happened. So it's a very big mystery. And, uh, you know, if somebody knows, definitely let me know, because, I mean, there was a girl that was talking to him who was going to come visit him in January or December of that year. And she had just talked to him like the night before it happened and he was fine. Wow. So very strange situation there with richard but i had always had hope that you know me and trey and richard would get back together again and at least if not anything just at least jam once you know yeah even if it's only in my rehearsal room you know <laughs> who well, knows i mean you never know with trey you know i invited him over and but he had gotten to that dui and so he's not driving right now so, and he lives kind of far away. He li he lives, I think it's some like Newport Ritchie area somewhere. He's not in Tampa anymore. Um, he, he's in a town close to Tampa, but not real close, maybe an hour away. Oh, okay. So it's, you know, I've invited him over and he said he'd like to come over sometime. So we, you never know. We'll, we'll probably hang out again, you know, one, one of these days. Yeah. So you, you never know what'll happen in the future with these things. <laughs> so, but it would be fun to just at least, uh, jam again because i always thought that maybe me and trey and richard could get back together and maybe have you know somebody like steve play bass and just do the abominations record and do some festivals that'd be cool of just just that record yeah and nothing you know we get up there play 45 minutes set just everything on that record and just for for old times sake kind of you know not that it was would be more of an angel 
No, you, know, you could pull they, you could pull a David Vincent uh, with the am I morbid thing, and you could call it uh, abominations. <laughs> really, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of thought maybe something like that could one day happen. Yeah, you know, which would be really cool. Yeah, and I didn't want to say that I would be back in Morbid Angel. I wanted it to be just its own little thing that that possibly we could do this. You know, just do some festivals, stuff like that. Well, and just do the old stuff the way it is. You know, on the record. Well, yes, and there's there's a few questions that kind of coincide with that. So I don't want to let that opportunity get too far off course here, and then kick it into our next. Uh, segment if we even had them here on the show where we're going to uh, dive into some uh, fan uh, fan uh, um, questions so for anybody that's in the fan club that's why you want to be in the fan club you get uh, access and I'll reach out to you beforehand to be able to submit your questions so uh, Jacob Flores writes or wants to know uh, a few questions um, let me get here uh, the, the first one was more uh, appropriate uh, Nocturnus was on a hard and heavy video they played Lake of Fire on stage I'm curious as to where this footage was filmed do you remember okay. that? Okay. oh yeah for sure <laughs> cool. um, we were on, on the Grind Crusher tour with Napalm Death and Godflesh and we were in LA uh, we, we were going to play I forgot what the name of the club was but uh, we were doing setting up to do sound check in the afternoon and all of a sudden this big camera crew with these really professional like tv cameras came in <laughs> and it was you know magazine called hard and heavy yeah and they're like oh we're gonna do you know a grind crusher special so we were like cool you know and and uh we want to get a couple guys from the band and do an interview so the interview you see uh was was myself and lou the keyboard player and that was done on the tour bus that we had. So when you see us sitting there on that little couch thing, that's actually was our tour bus. So we did the interview in there. Uh, but I think we did that after sound check. But anyway, they they filmed our sound check, and we did Lake of Fire. Oh wow! And, and I think they also filmed it that night, uh, us playing it. But most of the footage, if you watch it, you can actually see like Napalm's death, Napalm Death's drum set behind mine. <sighs> So it, yeah, they filmed our so that it's some people think it's from the record, the 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 audio track, but it was actually the sound check that we did that day. Oh wow! So the fire, yeah, the Lake of Fire was our our sound check in California, um, summer of, well, I guess April of nineteen ninety one. And uh, sorry, I, I was listening and, and keeping track here. <laughs> Uh, Bjorn at wanted to know what happened with the production on the key. I love the album the way it is, but compared to many other albums recorded in Morris Sound around the same time, the production is kind of well underproduced. Yeah, there was a couple things that that happened with that. Like I said, we we were kind of unprepared to go in. We didn't have um, like my drums. I had a concert toms, so they had no bottom heads. And, and my drum set was all beat up. I had no, you know, I didn't have new drum heads on there. You know, we went in very unprepared. And when we went into Morrisound, uh, well, before we went into Morrisound, um, Jim came out, I mean, Tom, sorry, Tom came out and watched us practice once. And so we were practicing for Tom and 
after we played a song, he looked at Jeff Estes, our bass player, and said, can you play that bass part? I want to hear what you're doing there. And Jeff was drunk. <laughs> and he was like, oh, well, man, I really, you know, I'm kind of buzzed right now. So I was there. And he's like, and he tried to play the bass part a couple of times, and he blubbed it by himself really bad. And he set his bass down and just left. Wow. And this was like two weeks before we were going to record the album. We did not see him again until the morning of more sound the first day of recording so i pull into the studio more sound studio the first morning you know there's jeff in the parking lot at like eight o'clock in the morning drunk already wow. fighting with his girlfriend he comes in the studio can't play the bass tracks again takes his bass and he leaves so here we are in more sound with a week booked and the bass player just walks out. Wow. Because he can't play the tracks. We were like, oh shit, what are we going to do? You know? And uh, Dig was there, everything. It was crazy. You know? And it was like, what are we going to do? And so Mike Davis was like, well, you know, I, I wrote a lot of these, most of these riffs. So I guess I'm going to have to play the bass. And he's not a bass player, he's a guitar player. So literally, we went ahead and recorded with just guitar and drums instead of guitar, bass and drums. And, and then Mike had to dub in all the bass parts. And he was literally after he did his guitar parts, um, he would literally go in one of the rooms in Morris sound by himself and sit there and learn all the bass parts to every song. And then he came in there and of course he played them with a pick and Jeff would play with his fingers. So, the bass wasn't what it was supposed to be at all, you know? And, and, uh, it sounded more like a guitar playing bass. And, and so we mixed the bass really low. Wow. And, and, and like I said, the drums, my drums were in terrible condition. I cracked cymbals. I didn't have that much money back then. And we didn't really have a budget to buy all new equipment to go in the studio. And, um, so that's basically that we had really shitty equipment. <laughs> yeah. Drums were concert toms. He, Tom didn't even want to use that. My drum set at all. He was like, I can't record with concert toms. You know, you got to have bottom heads on these and blah, blah, you know, and I had cracked cymbals and it ah, was, it was just right. no bass and <laughs> it, just everything that went wrong pretty much could have went wrong, you know? Yeah. But we still got it done. But like I said, the, the bass was mixed really, really low. You can barely hear it on there. And it's not even Jeff playing it. Mike had to end up playing all the bass parts. And he was literally learning them in the studio. I mean, yeah, he knew what they, what, you know, he knew what to play because he wrote the guitar parts, most of them. But it was just like a, a mess. You know, we were kind of stuck. We had Dig was here. He flew from England. You know, we had Tom, which is a total professional kind of guy. You know, and and I wasn't comfortable with that. You know, I I felt more comfortable with somebody like Jim or Scott. You know, and it and it made me more nervous. You know, so we plus that was done to tape. That's no Pro Tools or anything. Right. You know, that was the old mixing board at Morris Sound. Uh, there's no Pro Tools on that. There's no uh, triggers, no samples nothing that's the real drums everything's real there's no fixing of drums there's no you know nothing that that 
key recording is super raw and and um that's why it sounds so different than anything that's ever come out of morris sound but now you take thresholds i still had the same drum set so tom said i'm not gonna let you bring this drum set into morris sound so, so he he rented a, a yamaha drum kit for thresholds and i played on that so i didn't even play on my own drum set uh for thresholds it was a you know they had the new mixing board in there. They had, uh, you know, I had a drum set, a full brand new drum set to use. So that's why Threshold sounds like a, a more sound recording and the key doesn't. Hmm. That makes, that brings it all together. This one's an interesting question from Mongo. Would he, uh, would he, so what would Mike have played on the, oh man, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but the, the Elude Divinum Insanus, if uh, Trey had asked you to uh, for years ago. I'm presuming you know what record I'm talking about <laughs> with that horrendous <laughs> pronunciation. The 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 un the unwidely acclaimed Morbid Angel Return album. Would you have played on it if you were asked to? I I don't I don't think it would have happened that way if I was in the band. <laughs> it would have been a great what a way better record I'm sure it would have probably been some goth record like it was. <laughs> well, you know the funny thing about that record is is a lot of people think it it, it had a lot to do with David Vincent, oh, but no. the music is actually all written by Trey. Just about every bit of it. David wrote all the lyrics, but Trey wrote most of those songs. Huh. So is that a side of Trey that you weren't surprised to see? Um, well, I mean, when I knew Trey, he was a different person. You know, he was totally into Merciful Fate, stuff like that, you know, Slayer, things things like that. Now, I don't know that that Trey Trey got into a big era where he was into techno and I think he still is. Hell, was he even Trey to you as a friend or was he George, his real by his real name? Well, I I mean, I always just called him Trey, you know, because he really hated that name, George. Yeah. He really didn't like that. I mean, if you want to make fun of him, that's what you called him. Oh, really? Okay. And he would get upset. So (laughs) it's like your mom calling you by your first and middle name. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I I just called him Trey, but the Trey I was, is not the Trey that's that, that, that is today. You know, he's, uh, and anybody will tell you that he's changed quite a bit. Huh. You know, he covered up his tattoo. He used to cut himself and do all kinds of crazy, eat worms and do right. all kinds of stuff in the early days. He doesn't do anything like that anymore. You know? Right. So, but he's still, he's still Trey, I'm sure, down in, deep inside there. It's just, I think different situations bring different things out in Trey. Hmm. So he's, he's got his, he's got his techno side. He loves, techno music and i'm actually surprised that what he did didn't sound more techno-y than than because to me elude has almost a genitortures kind of sound to it yeah okay you know i think a lot of people think that david wrote a lot of that music on probably, there yeah because they probably agree and think that because of that right it has more of an industrial feel than techno so I think Elude would have been a good side project for Trey to do with those songs. And he should have stuck to the more traditional thing with Morbid Angel, you know. Yeah. That's my opinion, of course. Well, Connor wants to know what your opinion is. Uh, 
Well, he had a few questions. So, oh, that was Joshua. Well, sorry, Connor. We'll get to Joshua's first question. In your, what's your, in your opinion, what is the most underrated metal album? Underrated? I guess so. <laughs> Connor I, puts you under no, the on the, the mark. I really like the Exorcist Nightmare Theater record. Oh, sweet. You and Glenn Benton. <laughs> when put on the spot, that's the record you think of, huh? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> you know, the, as far as saying underrated, you know? Yeah. I mean, that a lot of people don't know much about that record. Right. And, and what's really strange is just last year, I found out there was a special edition. I for the next- was just going to say, did you know that? <laughs> And I bought it. It has the extra disc with all the extra discs? mixes. And I think there's four. I think there's four discs in that, isn't there? I think there's three, actually. Three, I think three. There's, Maybe there's four mixes I, and only two discs. Maybe that's what it is. I think there's four mixes. I think you're right. Damn. But um, I had yeah, no there's idea. mixes and there's extra songs. And, dude, I was, like, blown away by all yeah. that extra stuff that came out. And, and I... I remember that record. I had that record when I was in Morbid Angel. <laughs> yeah, it's that old, I guess. Yeah, it is that old. Yeah. You know, and it was the um, uh, Virgin Steel guys. Yeah. Well, then I was going to say, did you know about Original Sin? Yes. I, yeah, yeah. Did yeah, you know the, that yeah. for a while, or did you know that just kind of because that was also something that just came out again? High Roller Records did the special edition we're talking about. And he also did yeah, the original I didn't sin. Exactly too much on. I didn't know that record real well, you know. Okay. As like the Exorcist record, because it sounds a lot like it. Only it has a female singer, and then they credit all the other. They credit a bunch of women that aren't on the record, but it's just the singer that's the only difference. I don't. I, well, I heard Jack Starr didn't play on Bird, uh, on Exorcist at all. Huh. Um, it was all the other guys that did it. But to me, that record is just phenomenal. I yeah. love it, <laughs> and. That's kind of underrated. The solos are amazing, especially when I heard those other mixes of it. I was like, stuff came out that I never even heard before that was hidden in the mixes, kind of basically. Yeah. In that, or, or in the original mix, I, I should say. Yeah. You know, when they mixed it, those couple of versions, I was just like, wow, you know. To, so I kind of say that that's a very underrated record. I'd agree. That's a great. I wasn't expecting that one. I'll I'll give you that. Putting on the spot, boom! You pulled one right out. That was yeah. Uh, and and I kept saying Connor said that, which Connor wanted to know what was it like during the Incubus days after Morbid Angel. But I think we kind of covered that, wouldn't you say? It's safe to say that we covered that. Yeah, I mean that was a band that only really lasted like what five five months or so. Uh, it there wasn't really a lot to it. I guess that's why there's only what just the one demo, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I know I went to work one day and Sterling and Gino didn't work and they went to the beach and uh, I guess they got really drunk at the beach and were hitting on some girls and uh, Gino said something to Sterling and Sterling said something back and Gino punched Sterling and knocked him into the knocked him down, knocked him out almost completely. And then Sterling, you know, Gino ran off down the beach and quit the band and uh you know and then when that happened i was just like over the whole thing you know and there was a sterling was a maniac i mean he was a true crazy guy anywhere we went he would try to start fights with anybody 
I mean, he would go to the post office and start looking at people just trying to start fights with them. You know, it was crazy hanging around him because you never knew what he was just out of his mind. He was always trying to do something crazy, like to to make himself like out there, you know, like like he's a maniac. But he really was, so you know. So you know, it was like hanging around him, and uh, I don't know what would happen if we had continued that band because he was insane. He really wow. was crazy, you know. I mean, he would just do the craziest things, you know. You just never knew what was going to happen with him. But every time we went out to a club somewhere, you know, there would be a fight because he would start stuff, and it was just too much, you know. Yeah. So. When Gino quit that day, when they got into a fight and Gino punched him, knocked him down and in front of those girls, it, it, it just like that was pretty much the end right there. And uh, I don't know what happened and where Gino went or how he got back home because they were in Clearwater and this was in Tampa. So, um, But yeah, so I was just like, you know what, I'm kind of over this whole thing, too, you know, and that's when I was like, I'm going to do my own band. And write all the lyrics and sing and, you know, kind of keep it my ideas. And that's how Nocturna started. Well, then I think this is uh, a good way to get back to Jacob, uh, who had a question earlier uh, with his last question. And it'll be the last question that we have here for you. Um, I want to know how it was back in the early days of the Florida scene. I guess we kind of went over that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it depends on how early you want to go back in the you know like say the morbid angel time uh everybody was kind of doing their own thing and at first there wasn't really a lot of competition because everybody had their own sound it wasn't till i'd say the mid to late 80s where the competition really started coming in where everybody wanted to play faster and more technical and stuff like that so in the earlier days you'd go to a show whether it was sabotage or Morbid Angel, or Obituary, or who it was, you had the same crowd of people there. You know, from power metal to death metal to whatever, you had a good camaraderie of people that all got along. Right. You know, and it wasn't until the competition started and music started getting faster, the band started wanting to outdo each other in speed and and things like that. Would you say and, the competition was the notoriety that the bands were getting with, you know, record contracts and all that stuff? That had a lot to do with it too, you know, who was selling more records and things like that. And to me, I just wanted to do my own thing and I really didn't care what other people did. Right. Because I had ideas and, and they were always different than 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 what other people were doing. I never wanted to I mean, besides from wanting to sound like a little bit like Merciful Fate or Angel Witch, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I had influences for sure right but i think the stuff that i do always has its own style you know completely i never wanted to sound like somebody else exactly you know and and to me that was always the biggest thing is to to not sound like anybody else right you know everything i wanted to do i wanted to make sure it didn't sound like somebody else so speaking of the scene though does that mean then you were you know like some of the the famous, uh, the fame, I guess we'd be, you know, Tom, you know, John Tardy or Cam Lee, uh, you know, a Chuck, like you knew all those guys. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's still like that. You know, we, I mean, in Morbid Angel, we did shows with Massacre, Death, 
even we even did a show uh, when I was in Nocturnus. We even did a show with Morbid Angel at one point, you know, so everybody knew everybody back then. And then, of course, the Cannibal Corpse guys moved from I think they were in New Jersey first uh, down to Tampa. And, you know, everybody knew everybody. There well, was a, a good period where, you know, Deicide was here. Yeah. Male- well, the malevolent guys were more down south, but they used to be up here all the time hanging out, too. And everybody knew everybody. And there was a lot of, you know, the obituary guys. I mean, the bass player in our band is, is it was on the first obituary record playing bass, Daniel Tucker. What do you think it was of Florida to kind of have? Because, you know what I mean? Like, like you just said, you know, even like Cannibal Corpse, hell, hell even when I brought up the Morbid Angel, David Vincent, like, you know, mistakenly uh, North Carolina for location, like there's just very much something that like there's only the Florida death metal scene for like a definitive sound anyway of, of that kind of stuff, which, you know, obviously there's a Swedish death metal and there's other areas, but you know what I mean? Like it's, it's one of the few in the United States to have its own region <laughs> and particularly that region's not like even something vague. It's like particularly a state, you know, like what do you think of, why is it Florida? Well, I, maybe the heat <laughs> it just drives us into, into insanity. It's so hot here. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, really the funny thing is it actually started out with probably Sabotage or Avatar, what they were called before Sabotage. Oh. They were huge. Um, even when they were Avatar, they had these really big crowds and they used to play shows. And then you had Nasty Savage started playing shows and doing crazy stuff. And, and, then you know there was this little orlando scene you know with massacre and and death and you know they were doing their own thing and then they would start coming to tampa to play because there weren't a lot of places in orlando i think at the time but there were a few places in tampa that were really popular um like the brandon mug um was a very popular place and and place called ruby's and sunset club so what you had was more clubs in tampa so everybody kind of gravitated to tampa to play and and we all got along back then so everybody would do shows together and like like the uh like the big um rocky point beach resort you know it had us massacre oblivion uh executioner which was obituary yeah you know i mean everybody played that show right there was like 10 bands uh the atheist guys when they, they were called uh rabbits yeah yeah they you know they were on the show uh it was crazy you know when you think about that right though all things were on one that would have been a hell of a bill that would be an expensive bill now (laughs) like or impossible bill really (laughs) yeah and that was 1986 yeah and there was a great crowd there it was a it was at it was at a hotel that had a big stage on the beach Hmm. and uh, the funny thing was they were going to demolish the hotel the next month so this was literally the last show they did there, and the whole hotel was full of metalheads. Yeah. And the guy that was running the thing said, you can do anything you want here to this hotel because they're going to demolish it. We were throwing TVs off the balconies, sticking chairs in the walls and trying to sit on them, and people were walking down the hallways just <laughs> poking in the wall with their, you know, like – breaking holes in the walls because they didn't care you know i think i have uh, that show on youtube it is yes there's two versions of it actually two two different angles 
Yeah, there's one back by the soundboard, and there's one right up by the front of the stage. So, okay, and Trey's uh, playing that like white V. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think with wow. the red on it. Yeah, I had the yeah. And then the beginning, there's somebody like, look at all these posers, and I think Cam Lee's then there. And he's like, what do you think, Cam or something? Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny. David Vincent was actually at that show because, like I said, that was Scouting after out talent, huh? Yeah, he was walking around. You can see him in the video walking around. Was that how people knew him though? There's David Vincent like scouting out talent for his label, like because that. Nope. Would, but that would have been Nobody, like a thing for him coming down from North Carolina, right? Because he was residing in North Carolina, coming down to Florida. Well, but no, not that many people knew him back then. No, okay. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I guess lot, not. Yeah, nobody knew who he was back then, and I mean, he he was down here. He wanted to see Massacre play as well because he was big time into Cam. You know, he, he liked Cam's vocals a lot. Oh, well, there's that uh, live recording with of Massacre, and Cam's like, David Vincent's here, and, you know, this one's a pro, progr- aggressive tyrant. He's like, or is his version, progressive soup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that, as a matter of fact. Really? But yeah, so, yeah, when David came down here for that weekend, he wanted, you know, of course, he had us signed already at that point, and we'd already recorded, and he want, he was still after trying to sign Massacre at the time. But they had some, you know, bigger labels like Combat and stuff looking at them at that point. Yeah. So they were like, oh, no, we're going to go big time, big time on that one. You know, because, of course, you can't blame them. They had some really big labels yeah. that, that that wanted to sign them at the time. And they did, you know. Right. So, you know, that was um, – but it was – like I said, there was a lot of camaraderie back then. Everybody got along. You know, we – when I'd go see Sabotage play or even when they were Avatar – you know, you'd see the same people at the show as as a Morbid Angel show or a Nasty Savage show or whatever. You know, nowadays it's like when a band plays, they have their crowd. You know, right. especially these. Right. I hate to you know, like these new metal bands. <laughs> you know, like these young kids come to these shows now, and yeah. it's packed. Like say a Tuesday night, and the place will have five hundred kids in there, and they'll watch one band and leave. Yeah. You know, and then we'll play and, and there'll be like, you know, a hundred people there. <laughs> so it's like, it's crazy. You know, like, you know, it, it just depends on where, I mean, you know, we do good in Europe and South America, of course, but like here, it's really weird. It's, it's only a few of the bands really draw a really big crowd. Yeah. But a lot of this new metal stuff that's when these bands come through their the shows are packed. But I don't know any of these people. I go, and I'm like, I'm like, you know, looking around, going, right, I don't right. know here. <laughs> Where were you, know? you at the last good show? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. I mean, you know, you if if a band like Mayhem comes here, it'll be packed, of course. You know, things like that. But a yeah. lot of the, you know, like like smaller death metal bands when they come through here, they won't get a big crowd. You know, it's it's weird. People stay home, but then. You know, obituary will always bring at least three or four hundred people, you know, to a show. Yeah, it's not the same like scene mentality where it's like you know you're going because of the scene of uh, whatever music. It's just more like 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 you're saying, yeah, who's your favorite band and if they're playing or not. You know, stick right. around for that. I don't know. Times have definitely changed. You know, we're we're definitely not going to be able to look back at uh, these years of music and then fast forward. 20 30 years to then do the uh 
Exorcist-esque four mix version or like it has the live tracks or something from you know i just think of like bay area with like ruthie's and like these concert clubs that you get to know about not even living in the city but just because you you know you like that that region of metal really because that would be bay area thrash and then there's german thrash and then there could be you know famous concerts or venues in that scene and and then especially yeah, the death metal stuff, so like the, some of the stuff that you just mentioned. Like uh, I've heard those names before because you see them on those 30 years later uh, releases that are happening. You know, Massacre, hell, there's been a few where it's like compiling stuff, you know. So, um, and obviously there's been several uh, with uh, numerous things that you have done. So it's, you know, it's just going to be a changing uh, thing for music. Like I, I think like the fandom is different because you don't have – you can't seek out that live recording or something that I'd want to hear from 1986. That's an entirely different fan dynamic than 2000 some era where it's like, who cares about the live recording? You know, <laughs> like um, the, the the difference is like you know like these days every album is perfect sounding because you got Pro Tools. Yeah, you know, doesn't help. Every albums you know are all triggered up and 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 quantized and everything. Yeah, you know, and and you didn't have that back in the day. Everybody just went in there and recorded, and what you got was what you got. You know, sounds like I mean, some stuff. It wasn't like you can sit there and make every bass drum sound exactly the same, and and you know, gate every tom and 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 if you don't like that snare sound, I got fifty other snare sounds. I can just replace it. Right. Yeah. I. I. I just like it's so different now because people when an album comes out now it everything sounds perfect on it because of pro tools pretty much or a program similar to it and and it's been fixed a lot of it you know not too yeah. many people go in and record the tape anymore and let it go the way it is and work on it from that point and that's a one thing I do want to say is is like what we did with paradox that you know when um Jarrett Pritchard he, he, he produced the album and engineered it too. And, and he had just bought a 24 track tape machine from California and he brought it into his studio. And I was like, Holy shit, this is awesome. Two inch tape real, real to real, you know, right. so we did paradox. All the drums were done on, on 24 track real to real. Nice. So there's, there's all, I, cause I use it. My kit is all roto toms. And the last thing I wanted to do is replace those sounds with some other Tom. You know, I don't want Metallica's, you know, one drum sound or, oh, you know, no. Slums, no, especially that. Or, <laughs> you know, you know I, I don't want somebody else's drum sounds on my drums. Right. I, I like my drums because the way they sound. I mean, back when I was like on the key, I didn't have any money to spend nothing so my drums were what they were hey you said roto i'm sorry to cut you off i just couldn't help but think of that uh icon at least to me iconic morbid angel do 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 intro on uh fuck what song is that um as like the yeah there is it, i don't know is is because i don't know like the is that there's not like a ton of roto stuff but that section like so that, what's funny about that is those aren't rotos there no but those concert toms and i actually had a six eight and ten inch huh. uh like form in a triangle and the little six inch drum was like little you know it was really small it was like a 
but it had no bottom head. So it sounded like a rototom. Okay. That's, that's it. Wow. Okay. The resonance yeah, isn't there. Yeah. With my kit now, I've got like five rototoms for my toms and one floor tom that's a yeah. rototom. And so I, I get that same sound now, you know, nice. and, and, and I like, even Jarrett was like, you want to record the rototoms? I'm like, yeah, I want I want the real drum sound. Yeah. My snare is real, you know, like it's not sampled. And so what you're hearing on paradox, why a lot of people think it sounded a lot like the key, uh, was because everything's, you know, pretty much, especially the drum wise, it's all on 24 track reel to reel. So we put the drums to tape. Yeah. That made and it a gave it that real drum sound. Yeah. Well, so that- there's, you know, it's, 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 I prefer that, you know, I could have went and pro tooled it all up and used samples and, and, and made my drum sound like whoever I wanted them to sound like, you know, like if I liked Slayer's third album, you know, you can get that snare drum now, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's literally like that, you know, oh, if you I, like, totally. a, you know, if, if a drummer's like, I don't like my snare sound. Yeah. There's you can change it. Or and other snare sounds they can just go bam and there it is and keep all the rest of the settings you had for everything else just yeah you can or spend you a day change that you yep. know uh, i mean there's always equalization but right, you're talking right, total right. sound replacement oh it's so. crazy it's absolutely crazy and then and then even the attenuation of it you know like you know drums are all about like at least the fabrication of them can seem more evident when it's uh it lacks velocities and attacks and stuff like that. So you could really attenuate that so well that that's a lot of where you can hide the fact that there will be a day if there isn't already that it's like, do you even really need a drummer? I mean, I think that you still do because there's that human element that everybody still hears and just resonates with, you know, you can't replace the human element no matter what digital is doing that. The one thing with, with, um, electronic drumming is <clears throat> they still can't get that cymbal sound that sounds no. real. Yeah. That's one thing that almost always gives it away. If you really listen, some people are pretty good with mixing it to make a drum set sound real. But for some reason I can always, when I listen to the cymbals, I'm like, no, that's not, you know, that's somebody who's using a, an electronic kit for this one, you know, and then I find out, yep. You know, or they sample replaced everything. So that's years of drumming and listening to that hi hat and those abrasive symbols in the real room, just you know, yeah. destroying your I hearing. I'm probably, <laughs> you know, I kept telling Jarrett, turn up the symbols, turn up the symbols. Yep. You know, I'm like, I want loud hi hats. I want, I want, you know, <laughs> I hate you can hear a record and all you hear is kick and snare, you know, and you barely Balance. hear the symbols. You can hear some of the crashes, but a lot of times, right, the record and the hi hat get really lost in a lot of these recordings now. Yeah, and, uh, I, I I just love a big drum sound. You know, nobody likes reverb anymore. Yeah, especially death metal vocals. Nobody uses effects on their vocals a lot of times anymore. Right. Most death metal guys want it dry as hell. You know, I still love you know being in, in the abyss when I sing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I love it. You know, I, I that's that's what gives me my sound. That I, I like that delay and echoey, spacey, big, big room sound. Well, this has been really cool to catch up with you, Mike. Like you're obviously an icon within 
the death metal or just metal community period and so to kind of just even hear stuff like that like up to the date where like yeah you're you're excitedly recording things taking it you know upon yourself and and then continue to you know innovate with it uh just even do it period um and then obviously remembering back to the old days like it's uh it's been really cool so i i appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this i know your dog is definitely appreciating it uh <laughs> i cut away from there for a second you're getting mad love from there so you know in from your dog in the end of the darkness and reaper metal community we're all happy that you're here so i appreciate that and uh if for everybody here that's watching, if you didn't, you've made it this uh, hour and 32 minutes into it, well then shit, man, then you are definitely a candidate to do everything that I shouldn't have to tell you to do here on YouTube, but I will tell you, because you need reminders, you need to go to ReaperMetalProductions.com and catch every single episode of Into the Darkness, whether it be video and audio, because they're conveniently linked there and archived and available to you very conveniently. So, go there, links are in the description, but hey, you want to stay here on YouTube, then you need to like subscribe and comment do all that stuff that everybody tells you to do and remind you of over and over and over again because that's what keeps this going and that's what gives us the power to talk to you next time